I invite you to turn in your copies of the scriptures to Ephesians chapter 6. There's been a change from the uh, title and the text for the sermon today, Ephesians 6. The text will be verses 10 through 20. In a few moments I'll explain the change, but for now, let us look at Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Hear once again the very word of God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And, and for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, Paul reminds us of the fact that we are in a wrestling match with those who promote wickedness and are evil, Satan and his minions, and that they have taken up residence in places of authority. Father, help us to understand this well. Help us to respond to it appropriately by, by doing as Paul has instructed us, putting on the armor of God that we, we might stand in the days that are evil. We pray, Father, that you would give us wisdom even in the midst of the, these days that are often evil. And as we look at things that are happening around us uh, in our nation, in our Uh, localities, our municipalities. Um, We pray, Father, that we would be salt and light to this world, that we would stand firm, that we would recognize that it could be costly, and with boldness and perseverance, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ before men. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Brethren, I have chosen to divert from chapter 4, where we were to finish the end of chapter 4 and if the Gospel of the Ephesians because of uh, something that took place this week that I'll bring to your attention. You may not have heard this, but um, I want to bring it to your attention. Uh, I thought it would be appropriate to go to chapter 6 because uh, you'll recall in the book of Ephesians that Paul is writing from prison. This is one of the prison epistles. He's been in prison for the faith. Uh, At the end of the book here, at the end of chapter 6, we find him asking that 
the, the, asking him that the church pray for him to persevere in the midst of this, that he would have boldness in the midst of this persecution. Um, and uh, rightly so. Here's a man who's uh, no, no young man at this point in his life who has, uh, as we read through Corinthians, uh, early part of 1 Corinthians, if I'm not mistaken, he recounts all of the things that he's undergone, the beatings, the scourgings, the shipwreck, all of those things uh, that have multiplied what would have been anguish in our lives, but uh, did its best to, to uh, deter from his health that he might spread the gospel. He's now asking at the end of the book of Ephesians for the Ephesians to, to lift him up in prayer. And he's not asking for, for strength, physical strength. He's asking for boldness. Uh, he, he's wearing out, but he wants to be bold in the midst of that. And, and that's a, it's going to become important when we get to the, toward the end of the sermon today. Well, I've chosen to jump ahead to chapter 6 for what I believe is a good reason. And bear with me, and I think you'll understand as I try to explain that a bit. Before I go there, though... Again, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church from prison. He's experiencing what will become more commonplace in the church and and in the not-too-distant future in that that first century, and that is persecution for the faith that he has in Jesus Christ and the church has in Jesus Christ. I believe much of what he is writing to the Ephesian church is in preparation for them to endure the persecutions that await them. They don't see it yet, but he sees it and he's experiencing it and he's preparing them for what he's experiencing. Brethren, if my assessment is correct, that that's what he was doing, Paul's instruction to the Ephesian church is just as salient for us today as it was in the first century. He was telling the church, you need to be ready for this. You need to be ready for what I'm enduring because it's coming to you as well. When we see and consider the wholesale changes that our society is experiencing, when we see the attempts by so many legislatures and municipalities moving toward criminalizing Christian practices, we can only wonder how long it will be before some new law will strike at our orthopraxy. Now, for those of you who may not understand that word, orthopraxy is the living out of orthodoxy, which is right belief. Our practice is what will be struck at because, let's face it, the evil one cannot cannot strike at what we believe. He can only strike at how it's lived out. The things that we believe are, are vetted in our conscience. It's not something that can be extracted unless our belief is weak, so weak, that when tested, that we we walk away from it or turn our back on it. I don't think that's the case with you all. I think that your beliefs are rock solid. But I do believe that they will be tested. When we see and consider the wholesale changes of our society and and, and the potential criminalization of Christian practices, we need to take note. We need to be sober-minded. You see, when civil authorities endeavor to curtail the Christian gospel... Seldom do they make a direct strike at our constitutional right of freedom of religion. They don't strike directly at that, at least not at first. 
That direct strike, I believe, eventually will come absent God's intervention. But initially, the strike at the people of God will be nuanced. It will come from a subtle direction. It won't be first perceived. And yet it's coming. In fact, I think it's on the doorstep. I believe it will come from a direction that the church might even embrace initially until the damage is done and the church finds itself in the throes of persecution. It will be so subtle that the church itself will even embrace the notions and yet when the persecution begins it will say, why didn't we see this before? I believe we are on the cusp of that kind of indirect assault. I'm going to point it out to you today. I'm going to give you the example. But this is but one example. I believe there could be a multitude of examples that the evil one is doing all he can to thwart the kingdom of God. And you are the kingdom of God. And so you are the target. Notice in this passage that Paul assumes that we're wrestling with principalities and powers. He doesn't say we're going to. He's assuming the fact. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He's assuming that this warfare is taking place. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. Paul is calling us to stand because we're wrestling in the midst of a difficult circumstance that we're fighting principalities and powers that are beyond our ability to, to discern in many cases. But if we stand on the Word of God, if we put the, on the whole armor of God, we can stand and we can endure and persevere through these circumstances. Okay, what's the example? This isn't going to be new to you. In fact, when you hear it, you're going to say, oh, wait a minute, didn't we deal with that already? Yeah, kind of. But let me tell you, things are changing. In 2013, our session produced a document on women serving in the military at the prompting of some of the men in our church. That document was revised, and in the fall of 2014, it was put into its current form. I believe, uh, Josh, is it on the website? It's on the website. So if you want to download a copy of it, you can find it there. The opening paragraph of that document stated why there was a need for such a document. The first paragraph, whereas on January 24, 2013, the former Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Army General Martin E. Dempsey, unilaterally rescinded the policy in place throughout our national history in the combined armed forces of the United States of America that women are excluded from combat. They rescinded that policy unilaterally. Two men. It didn't go before the Congress. Not a single vote was taken. No motions were passed or, or turned down. The president didn't sign it into law. The Senate never voted on it. The U.S. Congress never voted on it. Two men. The Secretary of Defense, 
and the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff decided on their own, it is now time to put women in combat. Do you remember that happening? Some of you are nodding yes. Do you remember all the hullabaloo about it? Probably not. There wasn't any. It was hardly noticed. Well, some men in our church noticed, and they asked the session, and I have to confess, I was not one of the men who noticed. Men, men in our church came to us, said, look at this, look what's happening. What, how do we respond biblically to something like this? Well, the session, I think, rightly picked up on that and, and put together a statement that is very helpful. I'll speak to that in a few moments. But we took up that, that problem and we went to the Bible to make a case for women never to be enjoined by force of law to serve in the military, let alone in combat roles. That was the position we took. In the third paragraph of the document that we produced, we expressed our concern for the introduction of legislation that would require women to register for the selective service. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, most of you probably do who are adults, 18 years of age or, or over. Children, you may not understand this, but when you turn, the young men of our church, when they turn 18 years of age, they get a little card in the mail from the U.S. government, and it says, fill out this card and tell us who you are and tell us your identity, and we're going to put you in a database so that if we ever go to war and we need to institute a draft, we know where to find you. And we will call you up, and you will go to war, and you will fight for this country. That's called the selective service. Why do I say that's important? Just this past week, Representative Duncan Hunter, Republican of California's 50th District, submitted a bill in the United States House, H.R. 4478, to amend the Military Selective Service Act to extend the registration and conscription requirements of the Selective Service System, currently applicable only to men between ages of 18 and 26, to include women between those ages, to reflect the opening of combat arms military occupational specialties to women. It is now proposed before Congress. So if you look around this room, and you see young ladies of 18 years of age up to 26. They may be your granddaughters, your daughters, your sisters, your wives. And I don't think any yet, but it could be mothers. You too will have the privilege of joining the selective service. So that in time of war, if needed, you will be called up to go to battle. Now, assuming this legislation passes, it's only been proposed at this point, let's assume for the moment that it passes, how would we respond? How would our families respond? How, dads, would you allow your daughters to be registered? Men, would you allow your wives to be registered? Grandparents, do you have a say in this? By all means, Husbands, what will you do? 
Shall we respond as a unified whole, or will, we, will our responses be different from family to family? Next week, I'm going to go back to the unity of the church. I think this is one reason that Paul teaches so tenaciously in chapter 4 that there needs to be unity in the church, because when these kinds of things happen, the church has to speak with one voice, or ought to. Frankly, I haven't given this sufficient thought to even give you direction for those possible future events. I'm just now on the cusp of this. It's come to my attention, and I didn't know this legislation was happening. I got a couple emails this week, and then I got a flurry of phone calls, and I'm wondering, what's going on? Uh, Friday, I spent two very long phone calls with uh, a man in in, uh, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who's Uh, on the cutting edge of all of this. Um, They have seen our statement from our church and they are very encouraged by it and they think it might provide some help. But suffice it to say, if this day comes, we have to make decisions. And we need to give thought to that before it happens. One One of the jobs as a pastor, and this is probably the hardest job, I'm not a prophet and I'm not a son of a prophet, well, one of the things that God requires of the pastors of the church is to, to discern the times in which we live. To take a look at them and look soberly at them and to inform the church what the Bible says in those times. This is one of those times. And so I'm working at it. And I'm not there yet, but I'm working at it. And I'm encouraging elders, you need to work at it as well. And not just elders. Men... You need to work at this as well. To me, it's similar to the situation in the garden when Eve is tempted by, the, by Satan. Satan is trying to turn her away from righteousness, and he's being successful. And what does Adam do? He joins in with the unrighteousness. He doesn't say, stop. Don't take the fruit of that tree. Put it down. Nor does he... T- nor, nor does he Go to battle with Satan, the serpent. What's he do? He acquiesces. Gentlemen, we can't acquiesce here. We have to stand firm. That's why we have this passage today. We have to stand firm. Paul calls the people of God in the face of threats from the evil one and his minions to stand. This passage begins with the reality of our days, wrestling with principalities and powers from the darkest places of creation. It then moves to, call, to a call to not yield any ground to the enemy, but to stand firm and do so with the truth of the Word of God. It then tells us when we stand firm that we are to be clothed with the armaments of God, not the armaments of the world. And lastly, that we should persevere in the proclamation of the gospel. This is what God expects of us. Last evening, Ken shared with us, and I'm, I'm probably not going to get the name right, so bear with me, men. Admiral Gaspar de Colign... Ah, I already messed it up. De Colignier. Close enough? I asked, I asked uh, Clancy if he'd help me out with the pronunciation. He was a, a Huguenot. Uh, a French reformer who wound up giving his life for his faith. Um, 
in the midst of days not dissimilar from ours when true faithfulness in God was being challenged to the point of death. To, To embrace the God of the Bible cost him his life. And to promote that, uh, the God of the Bible, and trying to expand the kingdom. He sent three different, he, he tried to establish three different colonies in North America that all failed because of persecution. He was in the midst of planning the fourth effort to colonize North America with the gospel when he himself lost his life. Here was a man who stood to the very end, which cost him his life. And Ken pointed out to us last evening, Are we that far away in the days in which we live? And I'm saying to you men today that there will be threats of persecution and they may not come from the way you think they're going to come. This is a possible circumstance. But if we stand for righteousness here, somebody's going to have to pay the price. If these laws go through, somebody's going, if they stand for righteousness' sake, somebody's going to suffer persecution. It's going to happen. That's what I'm here to tell you. A year and a half ago, we took a stand with a very unpopular position. Many churches, both in our denomination and outside our denomination, would disagree with the position we have taken. Their objection would be based entirely on cultural norms. Our position is based on biblical norms. Now, I believe the Spirit of God works in the hearts of men, particularly His own people. And it happens at different, in different ways and at different times and in different speeds. Each of us grows in faith differently. Hopefully, we're all growing, that we're not stagnant or we're getting more immature. You know, that part of the Bible is t- teaching us, grow up, you know. But grow up in your faith. Work at it. Don't be a child in your faith all of your life. Grow up. Well, I, th- I think God works, God's Spirit works in us to sanctify us, to help us to grow. And I believe that that's going to happen in the midst of potential persecution. And that people will turn from cultural norms to biblical norms when pressures come to bear. It may not be before significant losses are taken that that actually happens. But I'm optimistic that over time, the Spirit of God will bring to the attention of Christ's church the need to embrace the biblical norms and not the cultural norms. The Apostle Paul calls the people of God to stand firm in this portion of his word to stand firm in the hope of our salvation and in the promises given by God that His gospel will have the desired effect of converting the lost, but not just converting the lost, but being salt and light to the world. Hear the inspired words of God through the pen of the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 14. Stand, therefore. Stand, therefore. Having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. The shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Brethren, I believe it is the desire of this congregation to be salt and light in the world. I think you want to be that. I certainly do. And we as a church have taken a stand on the honor of women to preserve them from the horrors of war. We've taken a stand. That stand will be tested, and likely soon. But I'm telling you like Paul tells us. Therefore, stand. Don't waver. We must never waver for God's truth. We must stand firm for the truth of God. We must persevere, and we must not lose heart. We must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We must avail ourselves of the wisdom God has entrusted to us for the glory of God. We must be willing to sacrifice in the face of the enemy and trust God for the preservation of our families and brethren. We must rally around God's revealed word and stand for righteousness that God's name would be honored on earth as it is in heaven. I'm calling you to that. I'm encouraging you to be that way. And men of this church, we've got work to do. We've got to figure out how we're going to respond. And we need to use the collective wisdom of the men in our church. Many of you are, are, are great thinkers. I'm awed by it, by how you, you men think about things. Um, we, God's entrusted to us the ability to think about this and to come to a consensus on how we ought to respond. So I'm calling you men, stand with me on this. Let's give thought to this. Now, this brings us to the practical applications. I don't know how to sway legislatures. They say that if they get enough letters, they will likely back down. Frankly, I'm not so sure that's going to be the case here. I'm, I'm a little surprised that the man who actually brought this piece of legislation to the floor of the House of Representatives, he's not known for doing this kind of thing yet. And I've heard, and I don't know how truthful this is, so I'm hesitant even to share it, that he's bringing it for the very purpose to make it a debatable issue in Congress. That that's his motivation. That scares me a bit. If, if that's a, a, a good motivation, then, then I'm, I, I guess I could be for that in some respects. But he's put out there a piece of meat for the evil one. And that scares me. I don't want our daughters called up for war. I don't want our sisters called up for war. I don't want our granddaughters called up for war. I don't, gentlemen, I don't want your wives called up for war. Can you imagine? Two or three children in the home. We go to war. The selective service is invoked. And dad's not called up. Mom's called up. 
Do you see what's at stake here? And she's not called up just to serve in a kitchen or drive a truck. She could be put on the front lines. She's the one that will come back on an airplane with a flag draped over a coffin. Do we really want that? I don't think so. I certainly don't. So we have to stand. So in the coming months, I'm going to schedule times for the men of our church to come together and give thought to how we respond. Not everybody will be able to come. I understand that. But I want to take the time to think about this collectively and to come up with a righteous biblical response. That, I think, is being salt and light in the midst of our society. We're just one little corner of a very small bit of the kingdom of God. But you know what? This is where we've already said we're going to take a stand, and now we have to do it. I know this is an unusual sermon this morning, but the Bible teaches us that we are to be salt and light. That's going to have an effect. Light dispels darkness, doesn't it? When the sun rises in the morning, what's gone? Darkness is gone. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It dispels darkness. Salt changes the flavor of something, doesn't it? Now, if too much salt, sometimes it's not even consumable. But God teaches us that we are to flavor the society in which we live. We are to bring the gospel to bear. It should change things. Darkness should be dispelled, and change should happen as a result of being salty. I'm calling us to be salt and light here, to take this stand, to trust in God for the increase here. And maybe, just maybe, we can inform the rest of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I want this to be an encouragement to you. Our statement has gone out. There are at least four churches that I know that have already adopted it. There are more considering it. Things are starting to change. But when the pressures come from those outside the church, those who want to squelch our position in honoring women in the home, not as... The contrast couldn't be clearer. If you put a woman in a military uniform and hand her a weapon, what what are you telling that woman? Kill. Ultimately, you're going to kill somebody. That's what we're hoping you do. And we're hoping you do it well. And yet, God created woman for what? To give life. Not to take it. That's the whole issue here. It's an anthropological, philosophical, and theological issue. But it's very practical. Women are are designed for what? To give life and to preserve life and to protect it. And when the society says otherwise, they are going against the very design God has put in His creation. And we have to say, stop. It's time to say, stop. You're not going to do this with my family. You're not taking my daughter or my daughter-in-laws or my granddaughter or my wife. You're not taking them. 
Gentlemen, that's where you should be. By the grace of God, His Scriptures will teach us how we ought to respond. But we've got to cull that wisdom from the, from the depths of the Scriptures. We've got to comb in the Scriptures. We've got, to, we've got to do the hard work. And as we do it, I believe God will bless it. So I call you to come along with me to do these things, to work to the preservation of our own families. Let us pray together. Father,